So, this is lesson 30 in the study of the book of Romans, and we're nearing the end of chapter 9. Just by way of a review, I know there's a lot of new people here, but Paul is dealing with a wave of anti-Semitism in Rome. In the the 40s common era, saw a wave of anti-Semitism in Rome under the rule of Claudius. And that culminated in the expulsion of the Jewish people from Rome in 49 common era. Both the disciples of Yeshua and those who had not accepted Yeshua, all the Jewish people were asked to leave Rome. Well, with the death of Claudius in 54 common era, the Jewish people, both disciples of Yeshua, like Aquila, and those who weren't followers of Yeshua, are returning to Rome. And while Claudius is dead... I'm afraid that anti-Semitism that he began is not dead. The Jewish people who are returning to Rome are finding that things have changed. The Jewish people and the believing Gentiles, the Romans, were worshiping together before the expulsion. In synagogues made up of followers of Yeshua and those who hadn't even come to faith in Yeshua yet. Just the Jewish people who hadn't even come to faith yet. But things have changed. Five years have gone by. And now it would seem they're not worshiping together any longer. And if they are worshiping together, we can see that there's difficulty between the Jewish people and these Roman Gentiles. So Paul is contemplating a visit to Rome now that the ban has been lifted with the death of Claudius. And he's addressing these problems in Rome, but he's he's actually writing to a people that he does not know. Never been there before. And so he's writing his letter very cautiously, not knowing how it will be received. And so we kind of have to keep that in mind as we read, because of this expulsion of the Jewish people, Rome has some very differing problems than than he has experienced in, in the other cities that he's been in. The Roman Gentile congregation are boasting over the natural branches, we're told, or the Jewish people. And Paul tells us they're thinking more highly of themselves than they ought. He says they become conceited. And this is affecting the plan of God. Paul will tell us that, will tell us that the Gentiles uh, ought to be inciting the Jewish people to jealousy. And thereby prompting their acceptance of Yeshua. That's God's plan. But instead, their behavior is doing just the opposite. They're alienating the Jewish people. And it would seem from the fact that Aquila, upon his return, is now meeting in his own home, that that bad behavior and attitude is also affecting the followers of Yeshua and those who aren't. And so after after ensuring in the first eight chapters that these Romans who he does not know understand the good news and understand their salvation because that's what the first eight chapters are about, he started the ninth chapter by telling them that God loves the Jewish people. That theirs is the adoption of sons. Theirs is the covenants and the temple services, the Torah, the promises, and so forth. And so if you were a Gentile, if you're a Roman Gentile, that would lead to the obvious question, well then if God loves them, then why have they for the most part missed Messiah Yeshua? And we Romans have found this gracious gift. Why is it that God has revealed his Messiah to us and we have accepted, but the Jewish people have not? And so he'll begin 
to answer that for us in chapter 9. He tells us, first of all, that all the Jewish people are not Israel. And those who are Israel are those who have been chosen by God. And to prove his point, he brings up Abraham and the two sons of Abraham. Of Abraham's two sons, only Isaac received the promises. Ishmael is sent away. And God made that choice between Isaac and Ishmael before they were even born or done a a thing good or bad. He tells them the same thing of Isaac's two sons. Before they were born, before they had done one thing good or bad, God tells Rebekah that the older will serve the younger. And so Jacob the younger receives the promises of God and the lineage of Messiah. He does this all to show that the lineage of Jacob is no different. Some are chosen, some are not. To answer the next obvious question, isn't that a bit unfair? On the part of God to choose who will receive the promises and who will not receive the promises before they've ever done a thing good or bad? Isn't that a bit unfair? And so now, and then he goes on speaking of the sovereignty of God. And he reminds them that God told Moses that he'll have mercy on whom he will have mercy. And not only that, he'll harden who he chooses to harden. And for this, he uses the example of hardening Pharaoh's heart. God hardened Pharaoh's heart even though that hardening led to his death. And he did it to demonstrate his power on earth. In fact, we're told it was the very reason that he raised Pharaoh up in the first place. And that might seem unfair to us and certainly must have seemed unfair to them as well. Well, I want to tell you that God is fair. But he doesn't operate under our idea of fairness. He doesn't need to ask anyone's permission. But he does as he sees fit to bring about his purposes in the earth. And to prove his point, he uses the example from Isaiah of the potter, making some pottery for noble purposes, some pottery for common use. Okay, so now next, this is where we left off, and next he's going to speak about God's mercy. Romans uh, 9.22 says... What if God, though wanting to show his wrath and make his power known, endured with great patience objects of wrath prepared for destruction, and he did so in order to make known the riches of his glory on objects of mercy which he prepared beforehand for glory. Even us whom he's called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. Now, this is kind of a hard verse to understand because of the way Paul wrote it, but that's why I put Gruber's translation up here. It was much more clear than some of the others. But what he's saying, and again, he's speaking of Israel, he's saying, what if though God was really upset and wanted to destroy those who deserved his wrath, but he endured their disobedience with great patience? By objects of his wrath, he means those who are not chosen. And their behavior reflects that very fact. What if those who missed Messiah, those he will point to in chapter 11, who he will say are enemies of the gospel, deserve his wrath, 
But God is enduring their behavior so that he might make known the riches of his glory upon those who are vessels of mercy, namely you Gentiles, but not just you Gentiles, we Jewish people as well. So that when he shows forth his mercy on those he he chose to have mercy, they would see and appreciate the riches of his glory. And again, not just on the Jews, but also on the Gentiles. You know, you can see, I'm telling you, God is patient to a fault. You can see his patience in Israel's history. You can see this very thing if you look at Israel's history, which Paul is going to point to in the next few verses as he quotes Hosea and Isaiah. In the past, God endured with patience those who were fit for destruction so that those he had mercy on would appreciate what he'd done. Israel, if we look to Scripture, worshipped other gods. They fell into wickedness and depravity. They built high places for the goddess Asherah and the god Baal. And God endured that with patience. God's patience was mistaken by Israel, though, and served to harden their hearts, just as surely as Pharaoh's heart was hardened. And so he sent prophets to warn her. And what did they do? Well, they killed the prophets. God still, he endured with patience. But that served to harden their hearts as well. God showed patience upon patience. He did not destroy Israel until he warned her over and over again. And then finally, destruction. He sends Assyria to destroy Israel and carry off what they didn't destroy. And yet even then, he gathered a remnant back to show his mercy. The whole of Israel was not destroyed, but many were spared. Now some have misinterpreted these verses and the verses we're going to look at in a moment from Hosea, to think that that they refer to Israel being scattered among the nations, and that God is through with Israel, and now the Gentiles are in. We have replacement theology uses this. We have the two-house people use this. To think, they think that he's referring to Israel being scattered among the nations and now they're being gathered again. Speaking of the lost tribes here. And Gentiles in the Messianic movement are the lost tribes. Well, that's just not so. And I mean, if you really take a minute to think about what Paul's saying here, to think about this, you'd really make, understand that that really makes no sense at all in the context of this letter. Paul is not speaking of mysteries here. He's not trying to add mystery upon mystery. He's, with all of his skill and knowledge, trying to prove a point with clear examples. Not vague mysteries. He's teaching that God showed his mercy already by regathering Israel. He's already regathered Israel. The other thing that makes this type of thinking wrong thinking is that Israel isn't even lost here. There's no lost tribes here. James writes to the 12 tribes. There's no lost tribes here. Certainly not to James. Paul is saying that God spared a remnant then and he's going to do the same now. He's always had a remnant in Israel. And after quoting Isaiah, or Hosea, he's going to quote Isaiah to prove that God has a remnant of the Jewish people. He's always had a remnant of the Jewish people. 
You see, this is all about God keeping his promise to Abraham. And God can can fulfill that promise to Abraham through a remnant if he chooses. After all, we, we looked at it last week. He told us in the book of Exodus that he could fulfill his promise to Abraham through Moses alone. I'll make you a great nation. And he's told us that all Israel, all the Jewish people are not Israel. But Israel was, is, and always will be those he has chosen. God is sovereign. So Jesse was able to call again those who seem to be rejected in the past. He's able to do the same thing again with those who have not accepted Yeshua yet. And again, he's confirming his point that God loves and has not rejected Israel. And he's making the point that it is those who are called by God among the Jewish people and among the Gentiles according to his mercy and his choosing. And to make his point, like I said, he's going to go to the book of Hosea now and then the book of Isaiah. You know, whenever Paul wants to make a point, he just doesn't argue the point. He goes to Scripture and proves his point. Not his own words. He doesn't want you to take his words for it. No, he goes to the authority, God's word. Listen to what it says in Romans 9.25. As he says also in Hosea, I will call those who are not my people, my people. And her who is not my beloved, beloved. And it shall be in that place where it was said to them, you are not my people. There they shall be called the sons of God. Now it's easy to see why that verse is twisted, right? Because if you don't go back to the book of Hosea and you don't understand the book of Hosea, you're not going to understand what Paul just said. He quotes 110 from Hosea and 2.23 in, in that order. And it would, or 2.23 first. It would seem by his quote that he's speaking of Gentiles here. You can see how it would easily be twisted. Because he said, I will say to those who are not my people, you are my people. They will be called the sons of God. Certainly that's the way the church is interpreted. But again, you have to understand the book of Hosea. The book of Hosea is a prophecy concerning Israel's destruction and eventual scattering that we spoke of earlier. Hosea is instructed to go take a wife who's a prostitute. And his wife is symbolic of Israel who has gone astray from God and has has been adulterous. Just as a woman who strays from her husband. So God tells him to take an unfaithful wife and harlot because Israel is playing the part of the harlot. And what's the name of his wife? The name of his wife is Gomer. Gomer means complete and it's from the word gamar which means often to complete or end in the sense of failure. And the children's name are a prophecy of that end, of that failure. Let me tell you something else before we get to what their names mean. Our country could take a lesson from Hosea. From the book of Hosea. Israel at this time has strayed from God because Israel is a wealthy country. They're on and they control a trade route. They become a wealthy nation. And what happens to you when you're a wealthy nation? You become corrupt. You've got a lot of time on your hands. 
A lot of money and a lot of time are a recipe for disaster. And that's what's happening to our nation. You know, that's what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah. It's the same thing that happened there. You know, when Abraham and Lot separated, Abraham gave Lot his choice of where he wanted to settle. And what did Lot do? Well, he looked and he saw the rich, fertile valleys down by Sodom. He said, I'm not that area. Problem is, the wealth of Sodom had corrupted them. Well, that's the backdrop of Israel's destruction. Israel is wealthy, but when you are wealthy and you're doing well, you tend to forget about God. And they've forgotten. They've forsaken God. They had taken the idols of their neighbors and their foreigners passing through and forsaken God. And there's nothing new under the sun because our country's done the same thing. Well, the Lord tells Hosea this. And this is why you need to understand the book of Hosea to understand what Paul is saying. Chapter 1, verse 2. When the Lord first spoke to Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take yourself a wife of harlotry and have children of harlotry, for the land commits flagrant harlotry, forsaking the Lord. And so the wife's name is Gomer, meaning end or completion. And the children of the marriage become symbolic of the children of Israel. What's about to happen to them? And you talk about enduring with much patience. God is going to wait for the children of these two to be born just to prophesy what he's about to do. Right? And so they have a first son, and his name is Jezreel. And Jezreel means God sows or God scatters because when you sow, that's what you do. You scatter seed. That's what a farmer does. And it's what God is about to do to the people of Israel. He's about to scatter them as a farmer scatters seed. He's about to scatter them off to Assyria. They have a second child, a daughter. And she's named Lo-Rukamah. Lo-Rukamah means no compassion. Think about naming your daughter Lo-Rukamah, no compassion. But that's what God tells him to name her, Lo-Rukamah. And it's because God is not going to show compassion to the children of Israel. But he's going to send the most brutal people to conquer Israel. The Assyrians. The Assyrians are some of the most brutal people in the Bible, or for that matter, in all the history of the world. They took their victims and hung them on the road on stakes all the way back to Assyria. And if you survived, and the point is, if you survived, you wished you hadn't. If you surrendered, there was no compassion showed. They would execute you brutally and publicly. The point being, Israel has been totally rejected by God. They deserve to be destroyed. They will be brutally destroyed. But there is a remnant that will be scattered to Assyria and he's going to scatter them, sending uh, those who were not destroyed off to captivity in Syria. They have another child. And this is what Paul is getting to, because the other child is called Loami, not my people. God is saying, Israel is not my people. And that is what Paul's after in the story. Israel was said to be not God's people. The point, and the point that God uh, can call, the point is that God can call his people again. Now let's go to verse 10. And it says, yet 
The number of Israel shall be as the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And it shall come to pass in that place where it was said to them, you are not my people, lo a me. There it shall be said to them, you are the sons of the living God. So where he once said of Israel, through the prophecy of the children of Gomar, lo a me, you are not my people, he will say to them in that place, you are the sons of the living God. He's going to bring them back. And so Paul is quoting Hosea, and he also quotes 2.23. Let's look at that, but let's back up to 2.21. And it says, in that day, I will respond, declares the Lord. I will respond to the skies and they will respond to the earth and the earth will respond to the grain and the new wine and the oil and they will respond to Jezreel. Here the name Jezreel comes up again, but here it doesn't mean scattered. It means planted, as he'll say in verse 23. It says, I will plant her for myself in the land. I will show my love to the one I called not my loved one. I will say to those called not my people, you are my people, and they will say to me, you are my God. He starts with this verse first, and I'll say, uh, I will say to those who are not my people, you are my people, and Israel will respond, you are my God. All of this to prove that God is not done with the Jewish people no matter how bad it looks. Even when they worshiped a golden calf under the very mountain of God within days of receiving his word, God kept his word to Abraham. Even when Israel was scattered in the past, God kept his promise to Abraham. You see, these Romans are thinking that God is done with Israel. They've replaced Israel. And Paul is telling him, there is no replacement of Israel in the Bible. You cannot find the replacement of Israel in the Bible. In fact, he's going to tell them, God wants your faithfulness and love to draw Israel back to him. You're supposed to incite them to jealousy. And the point is, that he wants to make to these Romans, is the Jewish people you are treating so badly, the ones you are boasting over, are some of the very people who are the remnant in Israel, the ones that God will call the sons of the living God. Be careful because he's going to graft them back in. And then, just to put a little icing on the cake, he's going to quote Isaiah. To show the sovereignty of God, he says this, Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be like the sand of the sea, it is the remnant that will be saved, for the Lord will execute his judgment on the earth thoroughly and quickly. And as Isaiah foretold, unless the Lord Sabaoth had left us a posterity, which means seed actually, we would have become like Sodom and we would have resembled Gomorrah. And so there's a remnant that will be saved. And if not, then Israel would have been like Sodom and Gomorrah with no survivors. Have you ever met anybody from Sodom? How about Gomorrah? No? See, because God spared no seed from those people. He destroyed them off the face of the earth. But God, even though Israel was adulterous to God, in His mercy, because they are His chosen has a remnant in Israel. And so he goes to Scripture to show that the Lord has a remnant in Israel. And who is the remnant? 
Well, again, the point is God knows, but God alone. The point being, do not alienate the Jewish people even though he'll tell us later they're the enemies of the gospel, but he'll also tell us there's a remnant who are loved by God, and that's why he says at the start of chapter 9, that's why he began this way. In verse 3, he says, I wish that I myself were accursed and separated from Messiah for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are the Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption of sons, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the Torah, and the temple service and the promises whose fathers, who, whose are the fathers and from whom is Messiah according to the flesh who is overall blessed, God blessed forever. Amen. And to make sure they understand, when he gets done with chapter 9, he's going to say this in chapter 10, verse 1. He says, brethren, it's my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. So Paul is saying here that though it would appear that Israel has rejected Messiah and that it may appear that God has rejected or they have rejected Messiah and that God has rejected Israel, appearances are deceiving because God has a chosen people, a remnant of the Jewish people chosen just as surely as Isaac was chosen, just as surely as Jacob was chosen. And just as surely when he destroyed Israel and later Judah, because they defiled the land, God still had a remnant. He still has a remnant. And who is the remnant? Well, God knows. So as he'll say later, don't boast, because you may be boasting over the ones God, are God's chosen. So he's made his point, and the point is God has a remnant in the Jewish people who are Israel. The fact is, The fact that God chose Isaac from two sons of Abraham, that he chose Jacob from two sons of Isaac, is proof that not all the sons of Jacob are Israel, because just as it was with Jacob's father, so it will be with him. Those of his sons who are chosen by God are Israel. And he uses the book of Hosea to show that God has a remnant. Now the problem with these examples, there there is a problem with these examples. They're great examples. But the problem with these examples is that the Jewish people of his day are not like Israel of the 8th century. They're not chasing after the gods of Baal and Asherah. They're Torah observant. They're doing their best to follow Torah. And so his examples are good that God has a remnant and will always have a remnant, but it's not really apples for apples example because Israel of Paul's day is not depraved Israel of the 8th century. And he knows that's going to be on the mind of anyone who thinks reasonably. And so he says this in verse 30. What shall we say then? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith, but Israel who pursued a law of righteousness has not attained it? Now the typical interpretation of this verse is that these two, these two statements are like parallel statements. That the Gentiles obtained a righteousness that is by faith, but Israel, who pursued a law of righteousness, has not attained righteousness. They kind of look at them as parallel statements and the saying that faith in the Messiah Yeshua and the, the, that the Gentiles have received faith in the Messiah Yeshua and the Jewish people could not attain it through the Torah, so faith is good and Torah is bad. But that's not what he's saying at all. 
Paul is not disparaging the Torah in these passages. He's merely saying that the Jewish people, in their pursuit of righteousness that's found in the Torah, because I'm going to tell you now, there is a righteousness that's found in the Torah. No matter what people tell you, there is a righteousness that's found in the Torah. Right? But he's saying they missed it. He's not saying that the Torah is not righteous, that there's not a righteousness found in the Torah, or that being Torah observant is not righteous behavior. We know that because all we have to do is back up to chapter 7 and verse 12 where he says, so then the Torah is holy and the commandment is holy, righteous and good. The Torah is holy, righteous and good. It's not living, it's not living out the Torah that is not good because Paul said this in chapter 2. He says, For it is not the hearers of the law that who are just before God, but it is the doers of the Torah that are just before God that will be justified. And he also said this in chapter 7 and verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except for the law. The fact is, the whole of chapter 7 speaks about the goodness of of the Torah and the weakness of the flesh in that we by ourselves cannot keep the Torah. So it's not the Torah that's at fault, but it's their pursuit of Torah that was faulty. And he's leading them, like lambs, right up to chapter 10, verse 1 through 4, which reads, Brethren, it's my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is their salvation. For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to righteousness of God. For Messiah is the goal of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. We're going to look at these verses next week, but I wanted to get them to show you where he's going here. He's saying that Israel missed the Messiah for lack of knowledge, for lack of understanding of the Torah. Yes, they knew Torah. Yes, they were keepers of Torah. You know, another teacher that I know once said to me, I don't need to witness to the Jewish people because they keep Torah better than we do. Well, that may be. And that's certainly Paul's point here. They keep Torah and they keep Torah to be righteous before God, but they miss the righteousness of the Torah because all roads to righteousness lead through Yeshua, the righteous one. And so he concludes chapter 9 with verse 32 and 33. He says, Because they sought it not by faith, but as it were by works of the law, for they stumbled at the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone, a rock of offense, and whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. In other words, they missed the point of the book. God gave the book so that you would reach the goal of what it taught, and that goal was Messiah. It's a book about Messiah. It's not knowledge of the Torah commands or doing the Torah commands that makes you righteous. Because as we saw in earlier chapters, the commands can never justify you. They can keep you from sin, but they cannot atone for past sin. 
Notice our term works of the law here. Remember what it was? Huh? It was keeping the Torah Allah a specific group. And in this case, it's the rabbis. Keeping Torah commands does not offer you eternal life. I've yet to have anybody show me that. Keeping Torah commands does not offer you eternal life with Yeshua. The commands do offer you this, a life of blessing and well-being, but not eternal life. They will show you how to live a life pleasing to God. It identifies sin in your life so that you can repent of that sin and live a better life and be under the blessing of God. Listen to what Deuteronomy chapter 30 tells us exactly. Listen to what it says in verse 15. See, I've set before you today life and prosperity, death and adversity. In that I command you today to love the Lord your God and walk in his ways and keep his commandments and his statutes and his judgments that you may live and multiply. That the Lord your God may bless you in the land where you are entering to possess it. But if your heart turns away and you will not obey and you are drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you will surely perish. You will not prolong your days in the land where you are crossing the Jordan to enter to possess it. It promises you a long and happy life, a life of blessing, a life free of cursing, but I don't see eternal life there. However, if in the Torah you find the one pictured there, the one prophesied there in Deuteronomy chapter 18, if we back up a few verses... I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you and I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak them all that I have commanded him. If you come to know the co-creator of life, the co-author of life, the one who died so that all of your transgressions of Torah could be forgiven, the one that Paul tells us in chapter 10 is the goal of the instruction, the goal of the Torah, so that there may be righteousness for all who believes, then this promise applies to you. John chapter 17. Father, the time has come. Glorify your son that I may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Messiah Yeshua who you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. You see, it's not knowledge of Torah that's going to save you. It's not works of the Torah that will save you no matter whose whose works they are. It's knowing the writer that makes you righteous. It's knowing him. It's coming to know the writer that keeps you from the condemnation of the Torah. The Torah and all of its 613 commands are and always have been about Yeshua. Keeping Torah keeps you and gives you blessing in this life. Finding and coming to know the one who it speaks of gives you blessing in this life and it extends your life to eternal life. Amen?